So from Acts chapter 9, this is the conversion of Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as the pastor here. Welcome to each of you. Uh, Before I jump in, I want to give a brief invitation to those of you who are um, young adults, young professionals, maybe 20s and 30s. We've kind of talked about this crowd uh, here and there for the past couple of weeks and months. If that describes you, 20s and 30s, young professional, and you have signed up for a community group, I would love to meet with you for five minutes uh, right after service today. You can come right up front. We'll sit right here. We're going to have a quick conversation about getting your group started. Uh, We're really excited. We have some kind of housekeeping things to chat through. So if that's you, I will remind you at the very end, come up here. That'll also let all the other people go, and then you can have uh, food after. So we have a lot of people today. 20s and 30s right after. Thank you for that. We are two weeks away from concluding this series that we've been using as a vision series throughout this fall. We've entitled it Counterculture for the Common Good, looking at the book of Acts, some of the fundamentals of the church. Uh, We are a new church plant. We've been planted around seven months ago, and so it means that we are learning what it means to be a church to build a community, to become friends. And so we've been using the book of Acts as a vision series, looking at the quality of their community together two weeks away. And then in two weeks, we actually jump into an Advent series. Thanksgiving is around, what, a week and a half, two weeks away? That's hard to believe. Advent is coming. It's a series of preparing our hearts for 
Christmas. And so just two weeks left in counterculture uh, for the common good. One of the convictions of Christianity and one of the key values of our church is this firm belief that change is a reality. We want people's lives to change. We would not have planted this church if we did not believe that the gospel could change your life now, not just in the life to come. Sometimes when we're thinking about Christianity, we're assuming that, of course, things are going to change. Of course, my life is going to be different sometime in the future. But the fundamental belief of Christianity says that the gospel is this reality that's big enough, powerful enough, palpable enough for your life to be changed right now. It can change everything about the way you live today, not just one day. If somebody were to come and say, why did you decide to go into ministry? Or somebody were to even ask the second question, why did you decide to leave Redeemer, a wonderful church, and plant a new one? The answer to both of those questions is this personal conviction that when I read the Scriptures, I believe that God is saying life can be different if you follow Jesus now. And sometimes we just lose the the sense that Christianity has the potential to change our lives, every, every aspect of who you are. And maybe it's Western cynicism. Maybe it's being in the church a long time and, and hearing people say, your lives got to be different, your lives have to change. And when you don't see change, you grow a little bit cynical, you grow apathetic. Whatever the reason is, I want to try to reinvigorate the potential in your life to believe that gospel change can happen, right, and happen now. Today, we're going to be looking at what is maybe undoubtedly the most famous story of conversion in church history. A young Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus, he is militant. He is even violently opposed to this new and growing sect that in our story is called The Way. They're not even called Christians yet. It's that early. It's that new. They're called followers of The Way. Uh, This is the early church. But in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9 begins to unpack the story of what happened in Saul's life to transform him from being a hardline, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, super-orthodox Pharisee to the servant of Jesus Christ tasked with the global missionary expansion of Christianity. Paul's life changed that day. And we want to try to understand both the typical right, the common aspects of his transformation, and will also deal with some of the unique things that happen in his life. So before we jump in, let me read a quote for you from a biography on the Apostle Paul from New Testament scholar uh, N.T. Wright. Here's what he says. He writes, human culture has normally developed at the speed of a glacier. Slow and steady have been the rule. That is why the events that unfolded 2,000 years ago in southeastern Europe and western Asia are still as startling in retrospect as they were at the time. An energetic and talkative man, not much to look at and from a despised race, went about from city to city talking about the one God and his son, Jesus, setting up small communities of people who accepted what he said and then writing letters to them, letters whose explosive charge is as fresh today as when they were first dictated. Paul might dispute the suggestion that he himself changed the world. Jesus, he would have said, had already done that. But what he said about Jesus and about God, the world, and what it meant to be genuinely human was creative and compelling and controversial. In his own day and ever after, nothing would ever quite 
be the same. And that man's life changed in this chapter, Acts chapter 9. So we want to kind of really unearth what's there. I've got four breakdowns for you, four headings, four points. They are under the theme of gospel change. So number one is the need for it. Secondly, the source of it. Third, the motivation for it. And then lastly, the result of gospel change. So the need, the source, the motivation, and the result of deep change. First, uh, the need for it. Changing anything is hard. I don't care what you're going to change. Change your hairstyle, change your eating habits, your workout routine, your commuting patterns, your sleep time, your morning wake up. Changing something is always difficult. And for some of you, coming to church is a change. And we welcome you into this new community. We recognize that coming to church may be a challenging new practice for you. And that is part of our DNA, to be a church where people who aren't used to church can come, ask questions, find out more. We recognize that that sort of change may be difficult. Some of you also experienced a life-changing thing that happened this week. You may have switched from Netflix to Disney Plus, all right? Now, all of you signed up for that seven-day trial thinking to yourself, I'm going to cancel one or the other. Come on, you're not going to cancel one. You are not going to cancel Netflix in a week. You're going to keep it because you're going to say to yourself, Disney Plus, it's only $6.99. Not a big deal. But there are all these, right, existential deep changes happening in your life. Church is a much bigger deal. Disney Plus is not as big of a deal. But there are other things going on in our lives, and it always relates to change and how you relate to it, what your expectation is of it right, and what it means for you to dive into that change. We change jobs, we move cities, we evaluate relationships, we switch majors, we swap roommates. You can go from dating to engagement to being married to having children to sending your children off. All these different phases of change, and it impacts you in different ways. And it doesn't take a lot of digging around to notice that we live in a moment where people are talking a lot about change. More have been written about strategies for changing your life in the past few decades than any of the decades leading up to the past few. And as you look at it, most social commentators have realized that there are essentially two strategies that are being promoted and pushed forward for you to be able to impact change or affect change in your own reality, in your own life. And those two strategies are essentially this. Number one, if you want to change your life, decide what you want and work hard. That's an old strategy. This has to do with the will. This has to do with you deciding that there's something in your life that you'd like to see changed, and you decide, I'm going to figure out what it is, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to go get it. This is essentially the philosophic underpinnings of the meritocracy. All that means is the meritocracy says, you're going to get something, go out and get it, go out and earn it. The top earners are going to be the ones at the top. You've got to merit it. If you want change, figure it out, think rationally, make a choice, go decide, willpower. Number one. The second one that's a little bit more modern is almost the exact opposite. The postmodern solution around change hinges on you listening to your emotions and your desires. And you evaluate which of those emotions and those desires are the most strong, the most you, right? The ones that bring you to life. And so you push away the other ones. You choose the one emotion and the one desire that's going to make you feel like you are your most, uh, most free self, most autonomous self, 
the most you, you choose that one, you push the other ones aside, and you live into this new freedom and change. Not a lot about thinking and rationality, more about feeling and desire. Those are the two dominant strategies for change. Let's illustrate those briefly. Number one, if you want to change your lifestyle, you want to change your fitness level, do not dive into strategy number two, which has to do with emotions and desires, because hidden inside of each of us is a hamburger and some french fries and some pizza, right? If you're going to say, what do I really want? I want to go to In-N-Out. That's really what I want. But if you're trying to change your life, eat better, eat well, uh, overall fitness, you have to dive into strategy number one. You've got to decide to have a different life. You have to decide when you're going to eat, what you're going to eat, how often you're going to work out. I want to look better. I want to feel better. Strategy one, right? Willpower. But interestingly, when you're deciding what you want to do with your life, especially as young people, young professionals, trying to figure out the direction and the calling on your life, you almost always dive into strategy number two. Somebody says to you, what do you really want to do? What are your deep desires, right? When you look deep into your heart and your soul and your emotions, what comes out? Now, certainly there's some rationality to it. How much money can I make? What should I be doing with my time? What are my skills? But when you think about your life in the future, you dive into that desire, expressing it. Find that change that will bring you joy. And often when we think about Christianity, we assume that the Christian change is going to come through one of those two strategies, willpower and discipline or emotion and desire. And what this text is telling us and what Christianity is saying is it doesn't come from either of those two places. Change comes from some other radically distinct, different place altogether. But the reality is we still need it, right? So the need for change, number two, let's look at the source of it. Glance at verse 1. We'll dive back into our story. The source of gospel change. A couple of verses. Verse 1 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if they found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Our author, his name is Luke, he reintroduces us to this young man by the name of Saul. And we learned of Saul for the first time in Acts chapters 7 and 8, where he's giving approval to the stoning of the first Christian martyr. He's another young man by the name of Stephen. And as we catch up with Saul here in Acts chapter 9, Luke tells us that not a whole lot has changed from that original introduction uh, to Saul. He writes, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. At this point in the story, I mean, he is a a pretty bad dude. Uh, He is militant. He is angry. He is a zealot, eager to keep the law and maintain the purity of God's people. In Saul's view, Christians were dangerous. And Christians were dangerous because they claimed that a crucified man was the savior of the world. And any good Jew knew that anybody who had been crucified or hung on a tree was somebody who had been condemned by God. Deuteronomy 21, 22, go and look it up. Every good Jew understood that a crucified man was condemned. But what the apostle Paul or this Saul of Tarsus did not understand at this point was that he was completely right. 
except the condemnation was substitutionary. It was for Saul. It was for you. It was for me. He hadn't seen that yet. He hadn't experienced that yet. And so at this point in the story, Saul's zealousy, I don't know if that's a real word, look it up, Saul's zealousy had reached its peak and he's breathing hate and murder upon these early Christians. He's even gone so far as to request extradition papers so that he could walk 150 miles to the city of Damascus so that he could round up all of the Christians, men and women, both men leaders and women leaders who had impact in this community, and bring them back 150 miles to Jerusalem. This essentially would have been like walking to Malibu and back from San Diego on foot to bring Christians back into our community. How much would you have to hate Christianity to decide, you know what, Jerusalem's not big enough, I'm going to Damascus. He walked 150 miles. I want you to also keep in mind, and this is important, that Saul was what was considered a Pharisee. And a Pharisee, I quote, were model citizens of Israel, accepted leaders simply by virtue of their zeal for the law. But like the original antagonist, pride fells them. In the Gospels, the words Pharisee and hypocrite are nearly synonymous. The etymology of hypocrite suggests a pretender. In Hebrew culture, the Pharisees pretended to be the authoritative opinion on righteousness and the law. They are convincing, fervently loyal to God, zealous for knowledge of Scripture, respected as authority, even by those who disagree with them, their concern for keeping of the law, their sanctity of the temple, for the purity of Israel, and for the full Israelite claim on the land of Israel were fired by prophetic promise and charged with political implications, end quote. When describing himself later in his ministry, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. Then Philippians chapter 3, he looks back on his life. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, and the reason I read those two texts to you, and the reason that's such a game changer, an important part of the story, is because we're being told that change according to the Christian narrative, has absolutely nothing to do with increased religiosity. Did you hear that? Change according to the Christian story has absolutely nothing to do with an increase in religiosity. Many people assume that Christianity is an invitation into a religious club that practices this unique, distinct, somewhat strange things together in community. And if you really want to experience the highest level of change and transformation, then you have to practice with the deepest fervency and the deepest levels of consistency. And yet the man at the center of this story, the man who needs the deepest change at the center of his life, is none other than Mr. Religious himself, the self-proclaimed Pharisee of Pharisees. 
You see, religion says that you're accepted based on what you can accomplish. If you can prove enough, if you can do enough, if you can merit enough, be good enough, according to the standards of your God or your system, then God might notice and hopefully you'll find favor. But the result, of course, is always spiritual pride. It's always spiritual pride. Because if the change in your life is because you say, you know what, I've listened to this God. You're not listening to what he says. I have decided I want to follow whatever system, whatever God, and so I have buckled down and decided my life's going to be different. And there is change. You haven't buckled down. Your life's not changing. The result is I always have to look down at that individual and go, you're not working hard enough. You're not reading clearly enough. You're not insightful enough. You're not thoughtful enough. My life is changing. Yours is not. And this is why Christianity says that any change, any spiritual change that's going to happen in your life must always be anchored upon a relationship with Jesus that's anchored upon the principle of grace. Any effort to try to change your life, become more religious, that's not anchored upon Jesus or grace always results in spiritual pride. And see, this Pharisee named Saul, he was very religious. And change didn't happen through his religiosity, but it was actually his religiosity that needed the deepest level of change. There's a writer by the name of Rebecca Pippert, and in reflecting on her pre-conversion hesitations about Christianity, here's what she said. She said, I had never had much patience with religious people. And to my great surprise, Jesus had trouble with them too. They accused him of being a drunk and a glutton and of having terrible taste in his choice of friends. Here was a man who believed he was the son of God, and one of the chief complaints against him was that he wasn't religious enough. And then she goes on to say, I liked him immediately. Right? I liked him immediately. Deeper religiosity without an even deeper heart change always results in spiritual pride. And this is where Saul was. This is who this man was. This is where religion always leads you. Now look again at verse 3 for a moment. Let me reread a little bit here. Verse 3. Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told who you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Maybe the most famous part of the story right there. Saul is marching those 150 miles to Malibu or to Damascus in order to defend the honor of God against these followers of the way, right? He's angry. He is zealous. He wants people to understand the distinction between uh, a crucified Savior and the true Savior, and so he is marching forward. And like most good Pharisees, because he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, they would have been taught to pray and expect that if they were holy enough, good enough, moral enough, that maybe like the Old Testament prophets, this God would show up in the flesh and give them a vision. 
Man, he's got a long journey, doesn't he? Most commentators think it's going to take about a week to be able to march from Jerusalem to Damascus. He is walking in the hot sun for 150 miles with a small entourage of people. And you better believe that this Pharisee of Pharisees, he is praying. He is on a holy mission. He is going to redeem and restore Israel. He is defending the honor of his God. And the expectation of these prophets, of these individuals, is that maybe, just maybe, God's going to show up. Maybe I'll have an experience of this God. I'm defending him. And so as he gets to the gates of the city, essentially he can see Damascus. He's walked 149 miles. This bright light begins to shine all around him. And as he starts to kind of understand, maybe God is showing up. Maybe my fervency, my zealousy, maybe my passion for the defense of God, this is going to pan out and he's going to come. He's going to appear to me. And this God begins to speak to him in the light. And as he calls out, oh God, who are you? The response he got was, it's me, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And it wrecked his life in a good way. It changed everything. His expectation was that maybe God would speak to him, and God did speak to him, and the name of that God was Jesus of Nazareth. See, friends, in Christian change, change according to Christianity always starts right there. It's with an encounter with Jesus. This is the source of change. This is not willpower. This is not deep desire and emotion. This is a face-to-face conversation where you look him in the eye and he essentially says to you, what do you want? Who are you? You are saying to him, who are you, Lord? And he replies back, he says, it's me, Jesus. And you have been living your own way. You have essentially been living against me because I'm not at the center of your life. You have persecuted me, but I'm coming for you. See, that's where change happens. Let me take this to the next part and keep this thought going. Change in the source of it, but change in the motivation for it. See, the moment that Saul has this conversation with Jesus, notice it all goes black, right? It all goes black. He loses his sight. He's led by the hand into the city of Damascus. And verse 9 tells us that he was three days without sight and he neither ate nor drank. The hunter has become the hunted in this story. He has been tracked down and confronted with a few realities. The first is that Jesus was really alive. That's the first reality that he's confronted with in this conversation. He goes, man, I know the story. He might have even seen the crucifixion. They are about the same age, Paul and Jesus. They were contemporaries living around the same city. Jesus was at the heart and hub of popular society, and he's crucified. You think that he didn't see the crucifixion? Nobody survives a crucifixion. Even Jesus' own disciples, they're the ones giving witness to the fact he was dead, we buried him, but then there's these rooms that he's appeared to people. So as he walks from Jerusalem to Damascus, the light begins to shine, God speaks. Number one reality that he's convinced of is that Jesus is not dead anymore. He's alive. The second reality that he's convinced of is that this Jesus is so connected with his people that to persecute them is to persecute Jesus himself. 
Man, and so for three days, can you imagine what that would have been like? To sit in the darkness, cannot see for three days. They say that the Apostle Paul had the equivalent of essentially three or four PhDs. He was brilliant. And my man's mind was spinning, thinking about God and righteousness and sin and the narrative of faith that he and his people had believed for so long. He is spinning in the dark, trying to put the pieces together, but he can't see. He's still lost. See, and during those three days, we are introduced to a man, a unique man who completely disappears from the story after he's introduced to us, and his name is Ananias. And Ananias is a follower of Jesus, and the Lord speaks to Ananias in a vision and tells him to go to Saul in order to lay his hands on him so that he can recover his sight. And essentially, Ananias, he's got a qualm. He's like, listen, this dude's here to put hands on us. He's trying to take us back. Do you know who you want me to touch? He goes, I know, go lay hands on him. He is my man now. He is my chosen instrument. You can have faith, but he's, he's a little nervous. I don't blame him. He's got questions. But the Lord reassures Ananias to go to a street called Straight, find a young man by the name of Saul. He's a Pharisee, and he's blind, and he's in prayer. And Ananias, this is just my own conjecture, I'm assuming that when he knocked on that door, he walked in, they go, there's the guy. He probably started laughing and crying at the same time. And most likely what went through his head was he got you too. He got you too, didn't he? See, the Jesus that Ananias was serving was the king of the world. It didn't matter who this man was. He thinks to himself, grace and the gospel got you too. And he comes in, and he puts his hands on this man, and he blesses him, and he prays for him. And the first words that are spoken to the Apostle Paul were, Brother Saul. Prophetically spoken by Jesus through Ananias, and that changed everything because they were so deeply symbolic. They meant so much for those words to be spoken to him. Those words meant family. Those words meant community. Brother meant forgiveness and grace and welcome. And as those words were spoken to the Apostle Paul, at that moment, not only did he understand that Jesus suffered with his people, but he started to understand that Jesus has suffered for his people. See, and the cross meant rescue, the cross meant grace, the cross meant that the persecutor could be forgiven and brought in and welcomed in as a member of the family. For three days, he's thinking to himself, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? I have been persecuting God. And this man comes in, lays his hands on him, says, Brother Saul. And the moment that happens, the text tells us that his life changed. Brother Saul, you came to drag us off and take our lives. But they dragged off Jesus, and they took his life right, for you and for me, and now we can live differently. So let me take you to the last part. That is what motivated his life, right? That exchange, that brother, 
Change always happens in community. Change always happens in community with people who are willing to step out, take risks, and embrace the gospel with one another. And that's what Ananias did that day for Paul. Right? Change always happens in community. But let me look at the last part, the result of it, gospel change. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. When Ananias laid his hands on Saul and prayed for him to receive the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us that something like scales fell off of his eyes, which really means it also fell off of his heart. And my question is, what did he see when the scales fell off? What did he see? And the answer is, he saw everything he'd always seen just now through a different lens. Let me explain that. When Ananias laid his hands on him, his life changed dramatically, but in the same token, Nothing changed at all. James Smith writes this. It says, conversion is not a solution. Conversion is not a magical transport home, some kind of flu powder to heaven, a little nod to Harry Potter. Conversion doesn't pluck you off the road. It just changes how you travel. See, David Brooks, who I've quoted a couple of times, has a chapter in his book where he talks about this unexpected turn of events, how he started shifting towards Christianity. He's a very popular writer for the New York Times, had a unique thing happen in his life, and he started to bend towards Christianity. And here's what he writes about his own journey towards Jesus. He said, this was not like a religious conversion. It wasn't moving from one thing to another. It It felt more like deeper understanding. I understand those who cannot relate to this experience, who just want to see it as an emotional response to nature. I can report only how it felt and how it feels. Like there's a play you've been watching all your life, and suddenly you realize that the play you're seeing on stage is not the only play that's going on. There's an underplay with the same characters, but at a different level, with different logic and forces at work and greater stakes. There's a worldly story to follow as people move closer or further from their worldly ambitions, but there's also a sacred story to follow as souls move closer or further from their home, which is God. It's easy to not be aware of the underplay, but once you see it, it's hard to see the other play about worldly ambitions as the ultimate reality. The main story is the soul story. Everything changes, and the exact same breath, nothing changes at all. Deep impact and radical transformation. In one, from one side of the mouth, you say, he absolutely converted. But on the other side, you go, but he, he still had to live his life. He had bills to pay. He had place to, places to go. He had to travel 150 miles. He's got the burden of, of his own life, his own anxieties, his own circumstances, his own families. And if he lived today, he's got to go to soccer games. I just got to go shopping. Christmas is coming and there's gifts to buy. I mean, life just continues. But the reality is Jesus has totally changed the way we travel. See, that's what it means to be a Christian. 
Jesus has totally changed the way we travel. In the rhythms of your life, I want you to notice that Jesus has something for you to do. The great John Stott says that like the Apostle Paul, we need to experience a personal encounter with Jesus. We need to surrender to him in penitence and faith. And then we need to receive his summons to service. Look at verse 15 as I pull this to a close. In verse 15, when the Lord is speaking with Ananias about his visit to Saul, the Lord said to Ananias, go visit Saul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That what I want to pull out is that you are always saved into something. You're always saved for a purpose. You're saved into something. And that something is the grand agenda of God, which is to rescue and heal every broken person, place, and thing. And the Apostle Paul had a unique task, of course, in global Christianity, the history of Christianity, but so do you. If you're not a Christian here today and you're listening to this story, can I simply say that you are being summoned? into the reality, this grand narrative, the underplay of Christianity. If you're here today listening, you should be saying, could that be the underplay that I have longed for but have resisted stepping into? See, and if you are a Christian here today, you are also being summoned into God's grand agenda for your life and for the rescue and healing of all things. Because you gotta go to soccer games tomorrow. You gotta go back to school. You have kids, you have bills to pay, you have things going on, but you can travel differently. When you have an encounter with Jesus face-to-face, and he starts to change your life. I want you to just wrestle with that, the underplay of Christianity. And when he calls you, I want you to be able to say, I'm all in. Because this is the good stuff of life. This is the great stuff of your faith. And this is where change happens. This is where change sends you. And the cool thing is, we get to go together, right? right? We go together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. You gave us a story of a unique man, equipped and tasked and educated, and yet he could not see. Oh, how easily that can be me. How how easily that can be us. He knew his scripture. He was so religious. But I thank you that you sent and you saved the religious of the religious and said it's not enough. Because anybody who's exploring Christianity needs to feel the impact and the weight that yes, and of course in some senses, Christianity is a world religion, but the economy of religion asks us to prove, work, merit, and earn. And the gospel, the good news tells us that Jesus has done the work and the earning and the proving for us. And if we believe in him, his life, death, resurrection, and his reign as the king is part of our story too. And that narrative is not like Netflix being pushed out by Disney+. Plus. This is the announcement of the King of Kings. Please help us to not just glance at it and then just keep moving. Help us to travel different. Help me to be different. And sure, I have to make some choices and some decisions, but your Holy Spirit 
will enable me and, and coerce me and woo me and love me towards change. If I have a great day of decision-making, I'm not loved more. If I have an awful day and I fall off the horse, I'm not loved less. Help us to feel that. And Jesus, help us to be a church where we travel together. No more independent Christianity. No more lone rangers. No more hiding in the shadows. There is life to be lived and grace to be given. Help us to embody it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.